Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Hey, guys. Nick Wilson, Daryl Ryder, back on Afternoon Drive. We've got plenty to get to on today's show. we got the 5 at 5 coming up predictably at 5. But uh, the 2016 World Series was really cool when the Guardians had a 3-1 series lead. It was really cool when they had a 3-2 series lead. It was even cool when they had a lead late in Game 7, and it looked like they were going to win their first World Series since 1948, and ended up not being cool. But uh, Major League Baseball Network's going to be doing something really cool tomorrow night on MLB Network Reliving Game 7 of the World Series. So we head out to the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline and welcome on Tom Verducci, MLB Network, MLB on Fox. He is part of the coverage of Game 7 of the 2016 World Series, the celebration with Terry Francona and Joe Madden. They join Tom and Bob Costas at a behind-the-scenes stories capturing the key moments of what was a little bit of a tough-to-remember moment for some here in Cleveland. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Well, we're happy to have you here. And I, I just, I guess to start, in terms of this project, how long has this project been in the making and kind of what brought it about? Well, years ago, we did a series of the greatest games in essentially the television era of Major League Baseball. We did this at MLB Network, Bob Costas and I. And it was really tough getting it down to 15 to 20 games. And we did uh, shows on each one of those games. But the last, the last time we taped was probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. And we were thinking, man, we, it's time to update this because just in the last four or five years, uh, there's been a lot of great games, but especially going back to game seven of 16. Uh, listen, this, this is my 42nd year covering Major League Baseball. And I think with everything on the line for what that game meant, how the whole game was played, not just the end of it, that's the best game that I've ever covered. And I used, used to say it was game seven of the 91 World Series. Uh, but yeah, just given the history of this game, guys, and I think when you watch the show, <laughs> even if you're a Tribe fan and, and the pain is still there, um, it, you realize what a great game it was. You know, some great games have great moments, like the Gibson home run off Eckersley. This start to finish was a great game. Uh, besides the outcome of the, the Cubs winning the World Series, when you look back on the 2016 Fall Classic, what is the just, I guess, uh, most impressionable or first memory uh, that you have when you think of it? Well, I do think, uh, no offense to Cleveland, but the Cubs, you know, not having won since 1908, and what it was like even just in Game 3 when they hosted a World Series game. Uh, just an electric atmosphere there at Wrigley Field, and you know, especially given the ballpark and the history that it holds, uh, I just remember feeling this sense of 
uh, good fortune. Like, here I am, actually, in a World Series game at Wrigley Field. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime, and a lot of people hadn't. Um, so I think the overriding history between these two franchises uh, really gave this whole World Series a special feel. The fact that it went seven, that it was a come-from-behind three games to one down, all those things coming to play just made it so spectacular. So when you're uh, you know, doing the, the writing portion of, of what you do, how, how many times did you uh, have to rewrite your lead? <laughs> oh, man, well, I can tell you, I, I knew that the Cubs winning to going to the World Series was something special, and I actually worked out a publishing deal to write a book on how the Cubs, not just in 16, but over the previous few years under Theo Epstein, had turned around their franchise, kind of the rebuilding and remaking the Cubs. And I had two different deadlines for the book. And if the Cubs had happened to win a World Series, I had to get a book done in two months. <laughs> so that was on my mind is that, you know, no matter which game or which side this series swings to, uh, I'm going to be very busy writing, but especially if the Cubs win, I have two months to crank out a book. And the best part was, guys, after that World Series ended, I still had so much material and had so much more. I mean, I dove so deeply into that Game 7, every nook and cranny that you could think of. And the more I looked, the more I found. It was just fascinating, the stories behind the stories. Tom, I know that when all is said and done, Tito's going to the Hall of Fame. We'll be talking about ending the, the, his own curse there in Boston. But how does that 2016 run and his time in Cleveland how how big does that factor into Terry Francona's managerial legacy? Yeah, no, it cements it as just a, a great manager, great tactician. I mean, doing what he did in Cleveland after what he did in Boston, just consolidated the reputation that he had, that this guy got the most out of his players. You know, you hear that term players manager a lot, but great game manager as well. And to me, guys, the fascinating thing, when we sat down and looked at Game 7, uh, we had Joe Madden and Tito Francona with us in the studio. And this was an ultimate manager's game. I mean, I, used to, I always say game seven of a World Series is, is really, by definition, a manager's game. I mean, you have to manage it differently. There's no tomorrow. Anybody who's available, you're going to try to get them in the game. Uh, you take nothing for granted. You probably make decisions a little more proactively than you would otherwise. So having the two managers there and having, us, having them walk us through decision by decision and what they saw as the game played out was just fascinating. And even for me, a guy who wrote a book about the game, uh, listening to Tito talk about some of the things that he saw about what he saw in Corey Kluber, who was tiring at that point, And he's seeing it as it's happening in real time, sort of that inside the manager's head kind of thinking for those two guys to share them with us in the course of this show was just, I, I, I just think it was riveting TV. Tom Verducci joins us. You know, Tom, the uh, the fact that Tito couldn't end the then Indians, now Guardians World Series drought, and the Cubs have now passed the baton to Cleveland for the the longest World Series title drought. Uh, they couldn't do it with Tito. Uh, so my question to you is, can they do it with Stephen Vogt? Yeah, why not, right? I think it's a lot to ask right out of the gate. I mean, listen, Tito's one of the best managers of our generation, so anybody who gets hired behind him is just not going to rise to that level. But I think when you look at what makes a great manager, I think Steven's got a lot of those characteristics. You know, he's, he's played in different places, managed, or played under a lot of different managers, so he's got a good perspective. He's fresh off the field, which can be a pro- positive in today's game. I mean, I like to say the game changes so fast now that a lot of times if five years pass, we're playing and watching a different game. He knows the modern game. 
There's no question about it. Don't get me wrong. There's still a learning curve. You know, the game is going to be a little more faster when you're the manager than you're a player or a coach. Um, but I thought that was a, an inspired hire. There's no question about it. It may take time, like I said. There's not many guys <laughs> right out of the box, you know, go out there and win the World Series or even get there. Um, but, but I like the qualities and characteristics that he brings. You know what? You're playing in a division that allows you to build a team that wins, say, 87, 88 games. And as we've seen the last couple of years, guys, you get into the postseason, and that's the great equalizer. We can talk all we want about payroll disparities, but to me, the great equalizer is look what happens in the postseason. You know, the Diamondbacks can take out the Dodgers, even though the, the gap is about 20-something wins. It's just getting the right matchups for those three or four days, and, and then you start riding momentum, as Texas did last year. So uh, am I picking Cleveland to win the World Series? Probably not. But I do think they're one of, I'd say, probably three teams that can win that division. And as we've seen, anything can happen. Tom Verducci, MLB Network, MLB on Fox, in the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. We've been talking a lot about the behind-the-scenes stories, the capturing key moments, talking about uh, Game 7. This is going to be on uh, tomorrow. That's on Thursday, 8 p.m. on MLB Network. Uh, Terry Francona, Joe Madden, Bob Costas, Tom Verducci, all reliving Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. And so I know you kind of laid out what they could do there, Given the youth, given the offense hasn't exactly settled to who the starting nine are going to be, or you know, even with platoon starting eleven or or twelve, rookie manager, young pitching staff, you do have Bieber, but he's on one more deal or a uh, one year deal. You've got Tristan McKenzie coming off injuries. What do you see as the most likely path for the Guardians in twenty twenty four? I think they hold on to Bieber. I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, trying to trade Bieber and, and improve the offense, but uh, I think this team will at least be a contender for three months of the season. That's always the key for me. If you're so far away that it's kind of hopeless to think that Bieber's going to help you in a second half of meaningful games, then you, you strike earlier. But I, I don't see that they're not in the mix three months through a 162-game season. So, you know, if you're going to tell me that Bieber and, and Tristan McKenzie make – you know, I don't know, anywhere between 50 and 60 starts, that's a really good foundation for this team. And, you know, with Bybee and Allen behind them and some of the depth that they have, it's going to come down to scoring runs. And I think this is a better offensive team this year than it was last year. I still don't think it's a, a great offensive team. It's not a top five offensive team. But, you know, as Chris Antonetti likes to say, if, as long as we score more than we give up, you know, we're going to be a really good team. And I think they've got the potential to do that. Uh, Rob Manfred has uh, made it no secret. He wants to get expansion done before he departs. So my question to you, Tom, is once that happens, and we've seen baseball realign uh, slightly as well as drastically uh, over the last 25, 30 years, could we see more geographically uh, relevant rivalries within the division? For example, you know, maybe you know, have the Guardians, Reds, Pirates, you know, that type of a thing, putting them all in the same division. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think what you're looking at is some kind of realignment when they get to 32. It's probably around 2029, 20, 2030, 20, thereabouts, if not a, a year or two later. But um, there'll be a lot of discussions about that and, and what makes sense. Now, I will tell you that Major League Baseball was really happy with the way the schedule worked out last year at 23, where you played the 29 other teams. And that did increase the attendance. There's no question about that. And so I don't think you're going to see a heavily weighted schedule like we had in the past. 
So as long as they're playing everybody, I think that remains. The question then is, where do you go in terms of dividing 32 teams? Um, you know, maybe it's as simple as four divisions of four. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but I know the scheduling becomes a lot easier with 32 at 16 on each side. Um, but I do think, I, I agree with you, though, that leaning on traditional rivalries, I mean, that's more important season baseball than any other sport. And I know people like to say baseball is not the national pastime that it used to be. And if you just go by, you know, the television ratings, that's certainly the case. But baseball is super strong regionally. And part of that appeal is playing teams that are traditional rivals, and those tend to be geographical ones. So anything that favors those rivalries, and again, it doesn't have to be an overly balanced schedule. Yeah, I would be in favor of that, even if it somehow involves switching leagues. And then I know there's great history with the leagues, but at this point we have the same set of rules. It's not as cumbersome to move teams in the league the way that it used to be. Who's your leader in the clubhouse to get those uh, expansion teams? You know, I think what you're probably looking at is is two geographical reasons. Like, there's a lot of... um, cities that make sense like you're looking at nashville and charlotte uh given their demographics but i don't know that baseball would pick two teams that closely geographically i think in an ideal world they go east and west if you want to simplify it that much you've got portland and salt lake city on the west side i mean i happen to think montreal if they had you know a really good bid with a downtown uh retractable roof stadium would be a great market um they never really had an honest to goodness baseball ballpark and when they had the expos and I just think the demographics there are great. Nashville and Charlotte, I said, really strong. San Antonio, probably leaving out a few. But um, I, I would say right now probably one east of the Mississippi, one west of the Mississippi. That would just be my guess. Tom, you mentioned this is your 42nd year covering Major League Baseball. So I'm going to give you commissioner powers. All right, we're going we're gonna to make you the commissioner replacing Rob Manfred at the end of this decade. What is atop your agenda on fixing and changing in baseball? Well, I'm just going to go by not my own personal uh, gripe, but from what I hear mostly from fans, and that is fans want to see the product more than they do. In other words, the blackout rules, right? I mean, we now have a much more mobile society. People can move around. Um, Your favorite team might be in a different market, but even in your own market, you might be miles away from your closest major league team, but somehow you're blocked out from seeing those games in your quote-unquote home market. And I realize this hopefully is going to shake out in the next, you know, year to three years um, because nobody really knows what's on the other side of the new television arrangement in terms of the kind of the, the decay or decline of the regional sports network model. But there's something on the other side, and I just hope it gives fans what they really want, and that is to see more of your product and not be blacked out of games. So, listen, it's too complicated for you know any one person, especially me, to, to wave a magic wand and solve it. I don't think it's that easy, but I do think it's a priority for Major League Baseball. And I, I would hope that you know in the next two or three years that, yeah, if, if you're a, a fan of, of Cleveland, no matter where you live and you want to see your local game, you're not blacked out. And I hope that's true for all 30 or more than 32 franchises. Tom, we saw, and just as a, a quick follow-up here, just at the state of baseball, health of baseball, we saw you know, more of that finance money buy into Major League Baseball with the Orioles. I'm curious whether, whether it's rule changes that help fix the economy of baseball or whether you think enough of these, uh, I don't want to call them Wall Street bros, but finance bros coming into baseball, whether that can actually have an impact on how money is spent in baseball from from markets like Cleveland, where we could have an, a turnover in ownership, to, to markets like New York and, and L.A., where it seems like they're printing money. 
Yeah, listen, I think there's always going to be a gap, right? There, there always has been, and it seems like, as it is in, in our society, the gap continues to grow, and that's not necessarily a great thing. I don't know how you stop that in a sport that relies on a free market with, you know, not the caps that football and baseball has. But I will tell you that what really drives baseball is, as far as its health and certainly as an investment opportunity is something all businesses run on, and that's scale. Every year, Major League Baseball has 2,430 regular season games. In this day and age, that's called content, right? There's a lot of content, and it's consumed in a live sense on multiple platforms. That is so valuable in today's world uh, that, again, we kind of lose sight of the fact that, you know, 123 million people are watching the Super Bowl, largest audience since the man landed on the moon, and baseball can't even get, you know, a fraction of that for a World Series game. But the fact is, there's so many people consuming baseball in so many ways over the course of seven months that it does add up. So that scale is why people want to buy in. You know, there's impressions, there's shared uh, impressions, it's social media content, it's clips, highlights. It's basically a great content factory. And I think now what you're looking at is I thought the rule changes last year, guys, were great. You know, if you were a player or especially if you were a fan, Baseball effectively took 25 minutes of downtime out of the game, just like that, with a snap of the fingers. And it was great. We went through a World Series where nobody complained about the pitch clock. There was actually no pitch clock violations in the entire World Series. Nobody even noticed it, and which was great. It faded into the background. So having now more action over a shorter period of time, I, I'm bullish on baseball's future because of that, because I think now this is the new normal for baseball. You know, that meme that baseball is too slow and boring. I think that's dead. I, I think the game really is more exciting than it's been probably since the 1980s, which for me, and I know it dates myself. It's probably the, the golden age of baseball in terms of diversity of style and play and, and just how fun it was with a lot of balls in play and stolen bases and things like that. We're getting back there. There's no question about it. So I think baseball's future, I'm not saying it's the NFL, but in terms of where it was, that, you know, I want to say the previous decade, it's really leapt forward. I think we'll continue to do so. Tom, great stuff, man. I can't wait to see the documentary tomorrow on MLB Network, and uh, we really do appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I think people should watch it in part because, like I said, the two managers there, and they're both not currently managing. So they have nothing to protect or, you know, to a lot of times people still have a job and they don't want to give anything up. So uh, they're, listen, both a Tito and Joe Madden, they're, they're honest to a fault anyway. So you got a couple of straight shooters talking about one of the greatest games in history. It's pretty darn cool. Yeah, that's kind of my take is Tito's a bit of a wild card. When he starts talking about things, you never know. Sometimes <laughs> I think he doesn't know what he's about to say. Tom, great stuff, man. Appreciate you. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tom Verducci there of MLB Network, MLB on Fox again tomorrow. Uh, MLB Network, 8 p.m. Uh, the the greats, Bob Costas, Tom Verducci, uh, with Terry Francona and Joe Madden reliving Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. Didn't end well for the Guardians, but uh, it was a lot of fun until the end of that game. Uh, great stuff with Tom. We'll react to what he had to say on the other side there. I like the way this season sets up. Where, as of right now, people are coming in with zero expectations, uh, fans are a little jaded, and you've got a team with no pressure on them. I think what inevitably did them in last year was, I think the young guys at the top of the lineup felt too much pressure, and that's Quan, that's uh, Jimenez, uh, Jose at some points. Um, Naylor was pretty consistent all year long in what was his best year as a pro, but... 
I think you had too many guys, and once those guys stopped hitting because they were basically forcing at bats, I think that doomed the rest of the lineup as well. And I think it, I think it just became a self-perpetuating thing that it was just lost. And and then you've got the injuries to the staff. Like, I really – guys, nobody else in this division did a damn thing. This is my buddy Jim Cost on the ticket uh, on the morning show and in Detroit, and he's like, yeah, they didn't do a damn thing. The Tigers didn't. They're just expecting it better because they're young. Kansas City – yeah, made a few moves, but I don't think that none of those are needle movers. Yeah, like uh, they signed a bunch of guys who, if you're lucky, are two win players, league average players. Mm-hmm. I don't think that moves the needle, and, and I think they're expecting Bobby Witt to just be so good that 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 he just. But like we saw with Trout in L.A., doesn't matter how good you are, one individual player, you need you need three or four of those guys at any given time. Yeah, but and if you want any example of just how fickle the game of baseball can be. What would happen to Oscar Gonzalez? Yeah. He, you know, wild card MVP uh, for the Guardians, sent him to the division series, and he seemed to wash out in, in the blink of an eye. I'll still say I think that was a little bit on Tito and a little bit on the rest of the lineup not hitting. I, I think it seems like – I don't know if this is real or not. It seems like Stephen Vogt is intent on letting guys be who they are. Yeah. And the reality is, I think the Guardians were trying to emulate where all one through nine swung the ball. I swung the the bat the same way, right? You know, and that's that. You can do that for guys who that they're naturally good at that. You can't steal the if a guy uh, is a is a see ball hit ball guy. You can't try and force him or shoehorn him in. And I I like I still think like I think there's a part of me. I know Oscar is not a huge prospect coming up. I think they had a chance with him, and I think I think he had too many people in his, in his head ears. Yep, on top of his own natural issues, paralysis a, by yeah, analysis. And, as a guy who was a swing happy guy, yeah. And and look, I mean, the, the conversation Meredith's been uh, mentioning it in the uh, in the twenty twenty updates, where uh, you know, uh, I guess vote told Paul Hoynes there's some uh, conversation and consideration about having Jose Ramirez hit second in this mm-hmm. lineup and the the big obvious is driver he's 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 your best hitter yeah and, and to more so the reason you do that is to give him more at bats. bats yeah that's why you do that now if you had a lineup that you could insulate and protect your your three and your four hitters right you, you wouldn't be doing this but I think the reality for the guardians as they go into this season Nick is that they don't have that. Well, and I think there's, it there's just re- too many. There's just too many. Like they can, I think the you know front office and vote and the coaching staff, like they can project in their head maybe what type of production they're expecting yeah. from certain guys in in each slot in the lineup or whatever. And those projections right now, okay, that's not to say that they they won't develop guys that can do this, but the projections right now, I believe internally are telling them eh we don't uh, we, we really don't have a lot of protection in this lineup so we got to get our best bat which is Jose Ramirez we got to bump him up cuz he's not a traditional two hitter but we just we have to increase this guy's plate appearances I mean, it's the same thing that the Yankees have done with Judge moving yeah. him that far up the lineup I'm not criticizing and, well, no, no, by no, no. the way No 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 but I think like last year 
we were looking for, well, what do you do? Do you bump Steven Kwan, who was a league average hitter for most of last year? Right. All right, does he have to move down the lineup? And maybe do you move Jose up or do you move Jimenez up? Or And at one point, you move Jimenez down. Because here's like, the thing with the leadoff hitter. It's not about batting average to me. The most important thing, to, at least from my perspective, is a – you know, baseball fan is on base percentage. On base percentage matters more to me for the leadoff hitter than batting average does. Because you know what? I don't care how you get on base, whether it's you're leaning into pitches, whether you're drawing walks, whether you're knocking the cover off the baseball. I don't care how you get on base. I just care that you get on base and set the table. Well, I mean, I care I, to a point I- worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole well good thing instacart shoppers are as picky as you are they find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line they are milk expiration date detectives they bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are so let instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, you are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. I agree with you. I think the problem with Quan is the strikeouts really started to creep up right. last year. There was, Which is again, ironic because when he started off, right, I mean, there, there was a you know, no strikeout streak yeah. that he had and that, like, it... He started off so well in regards to contact and avoiding the strikeouts, and then as last season progressed, the strikeouts started to, to, to come along, and I don't know if that was a byproduct of him changing his approach or, or what happened, but that just seemed to be abnormal to what we had seen early in Quan's career. But I think to bring him back to the Hosey thing, I think what made last year so um, befuddling is that Tito did not seem to be willing to toy with the lineup too much. And I, I think yeah. too I I think Tito was a big part of your young bat struggling. And I think some of that was his insistence on making you earn it as one of his guys. I think some of that is his philosophies on hitting and how he felt the Guardians need to hit. Um but I think it penalized young guys for the same thing that was happening farther up the lineup. And I think one of the things he could have done in July last year to try and jump start the lineup is move Hosey to second. Yeah, and so I whether whether they do this or not, if they do hit him second, and whether whoever's around him and how you, it'll show you that there's more of a willingness to get creative with this lineup. That I think if you had had a little bit more last year, maybe you could have staved off 
the complete collapse that it felt like you had where you kept kind of churning water, you had above water, and then before you know it, after the trade deadline, after you dealt Savali, after you dealt um, Josh Bell, you saw the team go in the, the pot a bit. Johnny Manziel apparently making the media rounds again. I, maybe it's that yearly time where Johnny comes out and talks and we all have something to say about it. And uh, Johnny was on the Club Shay Shay podcast, which is the dumb, dumbest name of a podcast I've ever seen. I would never go to a club named Club Shay Shay, but I digress. And <laughs> he, you see, you seem like a Club Shay Shay type of guy. No, I'm just not much. Oh, for I'm the, sorry. That's that's Mac. My bad. Yeah, he is a, a Shay Shay kind of guy. We've been saying that about Amish Mac for a minute now, but. Uh, Manziel was on Shannon Sharp's podcast and he kind of talked about a missed opportunity when he was in Cleveland, when LeBron was back, that he he relishes he didn't take advantage of. I have a tremendous amount of respect for what he just said because one of my uh, biggest gripes about the whole situation is exactly what he talked about. He had the world by the string and he blew it. And then after he blew it, he ran around acting like he didn't blow it, and the Browns were the problem, and everyone else was to blame. Uh, remember the Owen 16 season uh, post on uh, Instagram that he had? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, shut up, dude. You had your chance. You blew it. You didn't care. And to hear him reflect uh, and take accountability – for his role in his own failure with the Browns, I I have to I have to give him his respect. Um, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really move the needle for me. I, I I you know I've always felt really empathetic for guys who have wasted opportunities because I don't think there's an adult alive listening to this that doesn't have regret and that right. regret doesn't hang over something in their life that they wish they could have done differently. Spent five more minutes with their dad, um, you know, not going to one party and the implications of going to that party. Everybody has regret. I just, of all the guys, Johnny's a guy I find it hardest to believe. And I don't know if that's because I have preconceived notions about him coming from wealth and then him blowing the biggest opportunities that some people never get. I don't know if it's that versus maybe a guy like Josh Gordon, who I look at coming from more humble beginnings and then proceeding to dominate the league only to then lose his career seven times over. I I feel a hell of a lot more empathy for Josh, and a lot of it is Johnny seems to do the Harvey Two-Face a lot. I'm not saying that I have uh, that I'm sympathizing or, you know, I just I respect him coming out and saying what he probably should have said five, six years ago. Yeah, but I don't know that I believe him. I think that's fair. There's always been a credibility gap with Johnny because Johnny can periodically say the right things and right. then other Johnny shows up. Oh, well, I mean, when he was here, he would say the right things. Yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? Like he'd do something to screw up and get himself in the doghouse. Then he'd you know, be around us. We'd ask him the tough questions. He'd say the right things. Everyone would say, oh, Johnny seems to get it. But and then we, you know, like within two weeks here that, yeah, Johnny really doesn't get it and nothing has changed. And so I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, yeah, it, it, I think it's for me, when I hear Johnny talk like this, I wonder what he wants. I think that's okay. the shame. And a lot of it has been the three or four times he seems to have talked candidly previously. Yeah. Uh, it is always been, oh, hey, I got this documentary coming out. 
And then the second that documentary's out, one, that documentary was made to make him look real good, even though he was not everything it was cracked yeah, up to be. Yeah, because they did not bother to yes. interview any of the Browns yes. principals, like the GM or the coach or yeah. the owners. So I, so part of me is just skeptical. I hope it's real. I really do. Because, you know, there's there just really is nothing more tragic than a guy who in seven different ways had it all and never really took advantage of it. Yeah. Um, so I empathize with it. But again, like... I'm not trying to kill the guy because that's not again. He's he's got. I don't know Johnny. All right, I wasn't hanging out on on East Ninth with some, like some of you have. You weren't in the club I, with no. Billy Manziel in Vegas. No, I was raising my children. And uh, wait, a minute, what hang, was the name he used? That was it was Billy Manziel. Okay, right? it was Billy. Well, Manziel. no, it was Billy something. Right, because he he had the mustache and the glasses yeah. and, and the it a, hat. Wasn't it a blonde? Didn't he have a blonde wig yeah. at one point? The 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 disguise. Yeah. So like. I don't know. Like, there are people in the Cleveland media who actually did go out and hang out with Johnny Manziel. It never interested me. It was the least interesting part of Johnny Manziel was I've, the Manziel mania thing. Yeah, I've never gone out and hung out with, with, with players. I find that hard to believe. You seem like you and Billy Manziel. The, you, the party you're like, animal that I am. You came up with at Nick Wilson does. I'm assuming you came up with at Billy Manziel. But, <laughs> uh, so that is one half of what he had to say. Johnny now, in the stash. Now, in fairness, I want to play the other part of this, which is Johnny Manziel on the Club Shay Shay podcast talking about um, – the shame that he has from from maybe missed opportunities and, and blown chances in the NFL and beyond. The one thing that really surprises me there, or ha that surprised me, I should say, uh, he brings up Joe Thomas, and um, Dan Murphy and, and Mark Bono wrote the the post Joe Thomas uh, retirement book there, uh, and in that book, Joe talked about how he had no animosity toward Johnny Manziel. Mm -hmm. And that stunned me. Now, I realize Joe is as easygoing as they, they get for guys. But if I were in his shoes, I can't, be, I can't begin to express mm -hmm. how I would have felt about Johnny Manziel if I was Joe Thomas. Yeah, I mean, and I think, and, you, know, it's, it's, you know what's funny about that is I don't blame Johnny for what happened in Cleveland because the Browns were asleep at the wheel. It was, it was a guy who shouldn't have been making the picks who made two cataclysmically ridiculous decisions. He passed on Khalil Mack to trade down, wanted Mike Evans. When Mike Evans didn't fall to him, traded back up to get a guy that, that apparently couldn't be bothered to, to uh, even return kicks in like a, a scouting sit situation while passing on Aaron Donald and Odell Beckham Jr. amongst others. Yeah. So like a lot of this is on the Browns, but like when I look at Johnny, it's like, are you, let me ask you this. Are, are you really, are you ashamed that you let Joe down and LeBron, the support system of superstars? Are you ashamed because you let them down? Are you ashamed because in letting them down, you closed a lot of doors for yourself? Because I, I think the thing that I always think it's the me, latter. If if we're talking about what you were saying earlier about you don't know if you'd believe him or whatever, yeah. I think it's the latter because, um, and again, I go back to Joe because if I were Joe, I would be so bitter and angry at that dude, mm -hmm. like. I'm in the. I'm putting myself in Joe Thomas's shoes here. I'm in the middle of a Hall of Fame career. I am out there every day, every snap. I am playing with all kinds of bumps, bruises, ailments, strains, pulls, tears, whatever. And you can't even bring yourself to come to the building prepared to work. I just and you're wasting valuable time in my career, right? 
I can't begin to express the amount of bitterness and animosity we have. So when I read that in, in, in that book of how Joe did not hold anything against Johnny, and granted, a lot of that was because they patched things up behind the scenes. But man, I, I just I, I hear I hear you, Johnny. You regret it. That that's all well and good, but man, you blew the opportunity of a lifetime well, to be a transformational player for a franchise that had been dying for a transformational player for basically a half a century. And here would be my direct message to Johnny with zero malice of heart. Cause it really like, I, am I irritated? They wasted our time. Yes. Am I, am I irritated that he, he appears at points to be a little bit sociopathic in the way he does business? Yes. And insincere. Maybe it's the better way to put it. I would say insincere. But, but here's what I would just say. Prove it. Because, you know, this, yeah, you have regret. You know how you show that you really truly have shame and regret? How you conduct yourself going forward. I have things I regret from my marriage from 10 years ago that I make sure every day I do work, I do the work to put in to be a better dad. I have things I regretted about being a, a young a young dad and maybe not being the best young dad. And every day I do something that I try to atone for, for what I consider to be my sins. So every day you put in the work to, to look back and go, I'm not that guy anymore and I'll never be that guy. So cool, you said these words. You said a lot of words in your career. Cool, now prove it. Show me. Because your actions tend to speak a hell of a lot louder than your words. I hope you're right. I hope this is real. I hope that you've learned your lesson. And not it's not about LeBron, it's not about Joe, it's, it's about you. It's about you not taking your your situation seriously and being the best person you could be and being a snotty entitled little brat for most of your adult life. While Show also me. while also dealing with be of service with dealing with personal demons and that's so, you know be doing the work to manage and deal with those demons that you you know talk about battling in your uh, you know in your time here in Cleveland. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.